For today and the next two Sundays, we'll focus on what is known in theology as the office of Christ. The three titles of that office that speak volumes about the work of Christ. And in Christology, this is Jesus' office of prophet and priest and king. And we'll talk about his role of prophet today as we examine John chapter 1. And all of this, obviously, in preparation as we celebrate the Christmas season. I am convinced that a departure like this from the normal schedule to focus on Christology is necessary and helpful to help recalibrate our spiritual senses and be refreshed with a rich reminder of who Jesus is and what he does and what he did. You know, it's interesting because when we sing songs, especially Christmas carols that are so familiar to us, things like joy to the world, sometimes these things become so familiar to the point where they lose their sense of awe and wonder and even to speak of the mystery of the incarnation, we can do so sometimes with such ordinary language and ordinary speech and there's absolutely nothing ordinary about it. In a world that lacks joy and so desperately needs to know it, it's a joy that we must understand, so it's a joy that we can also live, as Michael just challenged us in his prayer. We live in a society that's where the influence, ultimately, of Orthodox Christianity is waning, and it's being replaced by an empty, personalized spiritualism. We see this all around us. In fact, it's been disturbing to see the rise of Wiccan influence, the rise of satanic influence that is now being popularized in our culture, the worship of nature, all of these types of things that are rising up around us. And it even prompted one columnist in the USA Today about a year ago to write this question, will there be room at the end for Jesus in our setting as we become a more post-Christian society? The column continues that potent cultural forces are vying to crowd him out, of course, and chief among them is secularization, which has advanced to the point where roughly a quarter of Americans and upwards of 40% of younger Americans belong to no church or any other kind of religious organization. And of course, the article's referencing the religious identification survey that is conducted every year and has been since, I believe, 1975 or 73. He says, along with that, New York, New York Times columnist Ross Douthat sees paganism sweeping into the vacuum left by the recession of traditional Christianity. Douthat, in a recent column, who is a Catholic, by the way, notes that a, this kind of world spirituality is gaining ground as more people are getting rid of the transcendent God of the Bible. It's not atheistic. It's a spirituality that just seeks meaning in nature and ritual and supernatural forces. And Douthat predicts, and I agree with him gloomingly, that this pagan religion might be on its way to Christianity's successor in the U.S. He's right. Because we see it happening all around us. In fact, every couple of years, Ligonier Ministries conducts what's called a state of theology report. And you got to keep in mind that in their State of Theology report, it's actually polling, it's actually doing a survey of evangelical Christians. We are an, we are an evangelical church. We are an evangelical congreg- congregation. So people who would identify as evangelical Christians, 
This is a survey that is done by that group, and it's extremely disturbing. In fact, the survey found that 52% of professing evangelicals believe in this statement or agree with this statement, 52%, that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Apparently, no one ever read the book of Romans whoever, who agreed with that statement. Interestingly, 51% of that group accepts, believes that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Only 23% believe that the smallest of sins deserves eternal damnation. 60% agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. But we shouldn't be surprised to see that our society, therefore, is drifting into neo-paganism when elements of and elements of nature worship and when personalized spirituality and these types of things have basically taken hold in our society james white wrote in a day that when the world is increasingly secular and frequently apathetic the christian faith is losing its distinctive identity and content and it is the christians who are emptying their minds yet and hang on to this statement Yet without a clear embrace of the actual matter, the actual content of the Christian faith, we will have nothing to offer the world that it does not already have. It is this content of our faith that should most concern us. In the State of Theology report that I was just referencing to you, there was another question that was asked to evangelicals about Jesus. And this is the one that I want you to to listen to. The statement asked this question, whether you agree or disagree, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And shockingly, 78% agreed with the statement. An agreement with that statement makes you a heretic, not a Christian. But so many of us have not, are unfamiliar probably with things such as the doctrine of Christology, understanding the nature of Christ, who he is, what it means for him to be the word made flesh. And so we have all kinds of confusion. We've, we have lived in a world that has saturated us where Christianity has become about our therapy. It's become about our personal happiness. It's become about our personal well-being. It's not about the objective worship of him who is the Christ who spoke the world into its existence. Christ is a person who is intimately associated in direct communion with the triune Godhead, and he is to be worshipped as God. He is not a created being. Ignorance of theological truth and being biblically illiterate leaves us unenthusiastic about things like the incarnation of Christ. The more that we're ignorant of the great theological truth in Scripture, the less joy we have around a season like this. We need to be able to recapture the beauty of Christ's glory. 
The beauty of the miracle of the incarnation. This is what I want for us as a congregation. My desire is to see that as we go through the, the office of Christ here and looking at these things, that, we'll, that the God will just help us by His Spirit to get, just be refreshed in our soul with the absolute mystery and the glory and the awe over the Word made flesh. Nothing ordinary about that. And when our doctrine is right, our worship will be authentic. Our focus this morning is in John chapter 1, particularly the first 18 verses. Now, I know for those of you who know me, you say, that's pretty ambitious. Yeah, it is. So, and it's killing me because there's just a lot of stuff we won't be able to get to. I'm just going to tell you, just being honest. But it's a good way to introduce us to the concept of Christ as the prophet of God. Not a prophet. But what do we mean by Christ being the prophet of God? It's interesting. We were in John 1, 1 through 18. This is a prologue. It's an introduction to John's gospel. And it's an introduction that begins in a powerful way, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And when you think of those words, in the beginning, immediately our minds think of the book of Genesis. And then and John continues, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it, or we could say overpower it. Now John here introduces us to really our first concept here, and that is the prophetic witness about Jesus. He says there was a man that was sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten or the unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This is the one whom I said. He who comes after me ranks higher than me because he was before me. And from, for from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. That is the only begotten or the unique one of God who was at the Father's side, he, that is Jesus, has made him known. And so, Lord, we are thankful and grateful for your appearing in the flesh, Lord Jesus. And as our brother John testifies, writing under the inspiration of your spirit, you are the ultimate explainer of God. So help us this morning, we pray, 
As we examine this text, God, help us to recapture the mystery and the glory of the Word made flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, John tells us the purpose of his book in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's the thesis statement of John's gospel. In these themes of, and of belief in Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Son, granting life and light. I mean, all of these things that are these themes that we've encountered in these 18 verses that I just read are themes that will be unpacked throughout the rest of John's gospel. And all of this is meant to help us grasp something about the identity of who Jesus is. And that ultimately that Jesus in the careful distinction that John makes even against John, the, you know, the apostle John, is it's always bad when you've got two Johns going on here, right? We've got to be careful here. So we're talking about, maybe we should just call them by their titles, right? Apostle and Baptist, right? So, uh, but when the apostle John is, is distinguishing John the Baptist, he is careful to make this distinction here that Jesus is not just another prophet. Instead, he is the object of who the prophet spoke about. He is distinct from them. How so? Well, first of all, Jesus always is clear to make the statement that his teaching is not from himself, but is from the one who sent him. That Jesus makes also not just the claims that that he is speaking only what he hears from the Father, but Jesus also makes you know, extraordinary claims that, are, um, that got him into trouble with those whom he taught among. For example, Jesus said in John 5, 22, For the Father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son, that everyone may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You know, certainly no prophet of God would dare declare himself to be the object of honor before God, but yet Jesus does. Not only is he worthy of divine honor, but Jesus even declares himself to be self-existent like the Father. No ordinary prophet would claim such things. Obviously, Jesus is more than a prophet. So John's focus here in the first 18 verses, as well as the rest of the gospel, is really to help us understand his role as the prophet of God, the unique one of God, the one sent from God, the one who is ultimately the fullest expression of who God is. Because God came in flesh. No one can speak a clearer word of God than he who is from God. This is what John is trying to communicate. So the first thing that we want to kind of, I want to point you to five things that John looks at or examines here with respect to Jesus' identity. Oh, there's my pencil I was looking for. Look at that. I use these short pencils because they are so easy. But they're mechanical. So anyway, found the one I lost. How about that? Yeah. The first one is this, that he, that is Jesus, the first point here is, that John makes is that he is the one whom the prophets spoke about, like I just said. And understanding that Jesus is the prophet is helpful to understand that he is the one whom the prophet spoke about long before he came. This is something that we know about, and we'll see this more a little bit later on. But one of the things that's so interesting here about this is that not only does, is, 
John the Apostle pointing out here in these verses 6 through 8 of John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, as well as a testimony, even speaking about uh, John's testimony in verse 15, and even the relationship between Christ and Moses, but also John the Apostle here introduces us to statements that, uh, about Jesus himself that introduces us to new creation themes. And part of that is because he's helping us to understand that Jesus' arrival into the new or into creation, that the word becoming flesh is the inbreaking or the beginning of God's work of new creation as well, that was spoken about by the prophets long ago. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the prophet spoke that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And Christ, and actually the gospel of Matthew in chapter 4 attributes that to Jesus' arrival, that he is the light that Isaiah was speaking about. But how is that light to appear? Isaiah went on in chapter 9, verse 6, to say that to, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, John the Baptist declares that the, the era of darkness, the season of darkness, has ended because of the arrival of the child of God, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ever since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, the prophets of God have all spoken about a day when the Lord would bring a unique redeemer, a special king, a peculiar prophet, a righteous priest, a qualified servant, an honest judge, an obedient son, and a new Adam who would usher in a new work of creation and redemption where the curse of sin and the darkness of the world will be broken by the light of God's arrival in the flesh. Jesus is not just one of the prophets, he's not just the one that the prophets spoke about, but he is the true prophet who also spoke. Even the greatest of the prophets, Moses himself, testified in Deuteronomy 18.15 that he was looking forward to a day that God would raise up another prophet, one that was greater than him. And even as Michael read to us earlier from Hebrews chapter 1, or maybe it was Tommy, I'm getting them all confused now, but, but reading Hebrews 1, that long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Whom he appointed, look at this, the heir of everything. And through whom also he created the world. God has spoken many times to the prophets. But when Jesus opened his mouth to teach, the people knew something was different. You speak as one who has authority. You've never been to seminary. How do you know these things? Wish I could have, yeah, well, he had quite a different seminary experience, didn't he? As the prophet of God. He was not just another prophet. He's the one the prophet spoke about. When Jesus called up with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. He spoke with authority because he is the unique son. He's the one-of-a-kind son. 
He's the only one who's qualified to speak about God in a, in a way that no one else could dare to speak. Secondly, we learn here that Jesus, from John's gospel, these first five verses, we learn that Jesus is the source of creation. This is why he can't be a, a being that is created by God as opposed to the, the respondents of that survey. Jesus is self-existent. Jesus has life in himself. He is the judge that the writer of Hebrews just declared. And he also is the creator. And so that is what the Apostle John tells us in the first five verses here. I mean, using this phrase, in the beginning, John intentionally is directing our minds back to the book of Genesis. You notice that in those first five verses, you have the themes of in the beginning, you have light, and you have life. I mean, all of these words that we encounter in the first few verses of the first chapter of the entire Bible. And even John the Baptist in verse 15, he even acknowledges that, look, he's greater than me because he came before me. And people are scratching their heads going, wait a minute, you're six months older than him. But the understanding is obviously that Jesus pre-existed, that when he was born that night in Bethlehem, that was not the start of his existence. Here the Bible declares Jesus plain and simply that he is the creator John uses very deliberate vocabulary from Genesis 1 because it reminds us that as God spoke the creation into existence, remember, and God said, and there, there he spoke the entire creation into existence. All of a sudden, what John does here now is John helps us to understand that when God spoke that word, that was not just mere breath, that word was a person. The word, the logos here, is both the personal and divine. It is the source of created life is what John is teaching us. A person who has always been with God and is God. He, this one, who is the word, John tells us here, he's the actual architect and the builder of creation. The Apostle Paul declared the same thing in Colossians 1.16, that by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus' relationship to the Father is unique. It's unlike any other relationship. In fact, in John 1.14, as we read earlier, it is so personal, it is so unique, that the logos is defined by this term that's commonly translated in your Bibles as only begotten. But this only begotten, I think the Christian Standard Bible, NIV, actually do a better job of trying to capture the meaning here because they translate it by saying the one and only Son. And it's true. Because that's what this term is pointing out for us, that Jesus is God's one-of-a-kind son. He, he has an exclusive relationship to God that no other being could dare share or possess. There is no creature that could say and pray, give me the glory that I had with you before the world was created. Because God plainly declares in Isaiah, I am the Lord, and I will not share my glory with another. 
And so here, John introduces us to this understanding that this word that he's talking about, this, this, this is what it means for Christ in part to be the prophet of God because he is the word of God. He is what is the active force behind that spoken word of God. He is the agent of creation. Everything exists by him, for him. It is upheld by him. Everything is the result of the work of the Son. That is why he's worthy of worship. And this leads us to then, really, one of the main emphasis here that John is also, he's using creation in the old order to help us understand Jesus' responsibility and his role for the new creation in the new covenant era. The emphasis on Jesus as the creator points us forward to the greater event in redemptive history, and that is new creation, which is the third point here. So as we read this text, you, you, and I reminded you earlier, you saw the rich themes of life and light and beginning and all of these things that are, that are in this text here. And all of this is to help us understand that, that Jesus' arrival into redemptive history, Jesus' arrival, the word made flesh, begins or is the beginning of God's work of new creation, new life. That's why Jesus has these bizarre conversations later with guys like Nicodemus saying, I can't tell you, you got to be born again. Nicodemus is going, wait a minute, what do you mean? New birth, new creation, redemption, new life. These are all the things that are responsible, because, uh, that happen because of Jesus the spiritual condition of the world, that is the human race that John is referring to, is just like the earth in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. That when God, when God you know, created, when he created the heavens and the earth, Moses tells us that the, that the world was dark. That darkness was over the face of the deep. And in the same way, in the time that Jesus arrived, there is darkness over the land. Darkness in the souls of men and women because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve and our own personal rebellion against God. The themes of light and creation here are used by John to help us to understand that the only way that the, that the darkness in the book of Genesis could be dispelled was by the spoken word of God. And the only way the darkness in the human heart and in human society can be dispelled is by the coming of the word of God. Since Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, the world is dark, there is death, and Jesus arrives as the new source of light to dispel the spiritual darkness, give life to the spiritually dead. He is the author, not just of creation in its original, but he is also the author of new creation. This is why Jesus is more than a prophet. Because only his spoken word and his work can bring new life. Jesus summarizes this best in John 8, 12, and he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Such refreshing words. Because the problem of our day and the problem of Jesus' day was the problem of Isaiah's day. The world is weary from the effects of sin. Humanity is desperately needing Light and life. 
Listen, I don't care what pundits say. I don't care what psychologists say. I don't care what all the experts say and all the talking heads on media, television, radio. Nothing will ever change unless God speaks new creation in the hearts of a human being. Until a person is regenerated by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing will change. Society benefits from people who are transformed by the power of the gospel. But since Adam and Eve's rebellion and getting booted out of the Garden of Eden, the problem with humanity has been the same, rebellion against God. And as long as men rebel, society and everywhere around us will suffer the ill effects of, the, of, of what sin ushers in. But the only way that a human being can truly change is by the gospel and the word of life that Jesus the Christ brings. There is no other way of salvation or hope outside of that. Isaiah spoke about a day in Isaiah 59. That were, and he says in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, that behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save, or his ear dull, that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between me and you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah spoke about the spiritual condition of his own day, but also pointed forward to the spiritual condition that would exist in the day that the Christ himself would arrive. I mean, one of the things that Isaiah 59 is so, uh, why it's uh, such a, a meaningful passage with respect to this is because in Isaiah 59, the Lord himself essentially, uh, in fact, let me skip ahead because he actually looked and he says, in verse 16, that the Lord was displeased and saw that there was no justice. I'm reading in Isaiah 59, but here's what's so interesting. In, in Isaiah 59, the Lord saw that there was no justice. He was displeased over the darkness. But in verse 16, here's what the Lord does. The Lord saw that there was no man. He wondered at, their, at the fact that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. You'll notice these verses, you'll notice these words that, are, that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 later. Verse 17, that is he, God, put on, a righteous, put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so, I will, re, he, uh, so uh, will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. Those in Jacob who turn from de transgression, declares the Lord. <laughs> you know why I love that? Because it shows the uniqueness of Christ here that essentially the Lord looked around. He looked for someone who was qualified to be a redeemer. And Isaiah tells us he found no one. And the Lord did something, took some advice that your mama probably gave you at some point in your life. That if you want something done right, you do what? Do it yourself. And that's exactly what God did. The Lord says, I look for... I look 
Isaiah says God looked around for an intercessory. He looked for someone who could usher in redemption. He looked for someone who could offer hope. He looked for someone who could dispel the darkness that was over the earth. But there was none. And Isaiah says, and God himself took on the mantle, took on that breastplate of righteousness, took on the helmet of salvation. And he himself was wrapped in zeal and accomplished redemption. That is what we mean by Jesus, the Word made flesh. What, what a normal human being could never do, God did himself through his Son. There's no human being alone who can accomplish the work that's needed to overcome the spiritual darkness and death that runs in the veins of all human beings, mine and yours. It takes a unique, one-of-a-kind person who is both human and divine, human and sinless, to accomplish the work of redemption. And it must be and can only be done by God himself. And this helps us to understand that Jesus is the true prophet because nothing less than the word spoken and accomplished by God can transform your soul and bring us from death to life, from darkness to light. (laughs) It takes Just as much power as Christ had in the beginning to speak or to make the world in the beginning in Genesis 1. So Christ uses that same power to speak new creation in the hearts and lives of those who are now his. You know, it's interesting. God must act. It's God that must speak first. No one stumbles their way into salvation. It's God who must first act. Contrary to the evolutionists, the creation or the natural order didn't spontaneously appear out of some accident from molecules. The world in which we know began... By the act of God, and let me tell you, the church of God exists by the act of God. Church exists by the creative work and power of the Son of God. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 2.5, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were made alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. (laughs) And when you look at verses 12 and 13 there, what John talks about, he warns us that there were, that everyone in John chapter 1, verse 12, everyone who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, they were given the right to become the children of God. And he's very careful to point out to us that, that the children of God, they were not the ones born of blood, they're not born of the will of the flesh, they're not born of the will of man, but the only ones who are indeed the children of God are the ones who are born of of God. Salvation is something that is not inherited. It's not something that can be secured by another person, and it is not something that you can earn. The only way to be a part of God's covenant people is if you receive the Son of God. It's so important to remember this. The gospel never gets old. Fourth, Jesus is the manifest glory of God's presence. He is the essence, the glory of God's presence. This is what we learn in verse 14. Probably would help if I flip over and look at that. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, here John describes 
that the expectation of the prophets, this source of creation, this origin of new creation, that John reveals that as the prophet, Jesus is the supreme word. He is the supreme expression of God himself. You cannot get any closer to the prophetic word of God than when God is chosen to dwell among his people in a personal way and a word became flesh event. You can't get any more personal than that. John uses this particular term that I love. Most of our Bibles say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but the word is very rich. In fact, some of your Bibles may even have a footnote that says that he pitched his tent among us. It's a word that points us back to the Israelites, back in the wilderness when God pitched up his tent in the midst of the, of the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness experience. There God commanded the construction of the tabernacle and there God called this the tent of meeting where he would dwell in this glory cloud presence among his people and God's God's tent would be in the middle and all the other tents of the 12 tribes of Israel would surround the tent the tent presence of God in the middle of the camp and what is so glorious about this passage is that all that the children of Israel could see was this glory cloud of God that was in the middle of the camp, but it was shielded by a cloud. It was shielded by this tent. Now, John is telling us, this time, God is not in a tent that is made with human hands. His glory is in the tent of human flesh. His glory is in the tent of a body of Jesus, the Messiah. John is literally saying here in verse 14 that God took up residence through, on earth through the tent of human flesh. Think about that. The word became a person. <laughs> John says that we beheld his glory in verse 14, and indeed they did. The blinding brightness of God's radiant glory was concealed by that flesh. But Peter and James and John did for a moment. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Luke 17. They beheld for a moment Jesus' glory as he was transfigured on the mountain. They saw his glory in his full obedience. They saw his glory when he calmed the storm. They saw his glory when he fed the 5,000, the 4,000, when he healed the lame, gave sight to the blind, gave hearing to the deaf, gave mobility to the, uh, to the lame, salvation through his death, and hope in his resurrection. They saw the glory of God in the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus, as being the full expression of God, being the true prophet of God, he displayed God's attributes and his qualities personally before them. John describes him that he was full of mercy and truth, which are straight from the Hebrew text, straight from Exodus chapter 33 and 34, where God speaks of himself as full of steadfast love and truth and faithfulness. And these are not just now attributes that are spoken by Moses, but they're attributes that are realized in person, in the flesh, before the disciples through Jesus. And then you get to verse 18, which is really the culminating passage here. Because in John 1.18, he says that no one has seen God at any time. 
But the only unique one of God who is in the bosom of the Father, the one who is resting on the, and really the bosom of the Father here, John is describing in ancient times, it'd be like someone resting in the fold of a garment, like a child that you might have laying up on your chest like this. This is the kind of intimacy and relationship that the Son enjoyed with the Father, that the Son would be able to just, you know, was so close and intimate with the Father, he could lay his head on his chest spoken much along the lines of a father and child kind of relationship. The only one who was in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. This is interesting. And verse 18 really defines for us why this season that we call Christmas is so important and why it's so joyous. Because the glory of God appeared in the flesh, lived among his disciples, and by his spirit he lives now in everyone who believes. You see, in the Old Covenant, the glory of God could be seen from a distance. In the Old Covenant, the glory of God was concealed by a cloud because it was meant to spare everyone who was nearby because if they got too close, they would die. Fellowship with God was done from a distance. It was, fellowship with God was a vision that was hoped for from a distance. But as one New Testament scholar reminds us, the reason for humankind's inability to see God is because, first, God is spirit, John 4, 24, and second, humankind fell into sin and was expelled from God's presence, Adam and Eve. But when the, and when the Israelites, you may remember this, when the Israelites saw the vision of God in the, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, they cried out to Moses and they were, because they were afraid. And they said, don't let him speak to us anymore. Don't let the voice of God speak anymore because if he does, we're going to die. It's a terrifying experience. Even Isaiah who saw just a train, just a, just a glimpse of the garment that God was wearing in the temple when he saw this glorious presence, even a concealed presence of God. I love the New Living Translation here. It says, Isaiah says, he said, it's all over. I am doomed for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among people with filthy lips. And yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Moses begged for the, for the Lord to Show him his glory in Exodus thirty three eighteen. But the Lord quickly informed Moses, you cannot see my face because no man can see me and live. Don't you see now why John's declaration that the word of God, the very essence of God, appearing now in a personal way, robed in flesh, is such joyous news? Because anybody else who was able to enjoy that kind of fellowship and intimacy with God in the old covenant order would have been killed. But we can now, we can now know God, not from a distance, but we can know him personally through his son. The glory of God pitched his tent in a way among us and among his people in a way that it was never done before. And John says the word became flesh, and you know what? We beheld his glory. You know, even when Jesus ascended back into heaven and took his glorious seat on the throne that he promised, and he said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And the very spirit of God that rested on Jesus in his fullness, that glory presence that rested on Jesus, the very spirit of God that tabernacling spirit presence of God now indwells everyone who receives him 
See, fellowship with God without fear of death is now a reality because of God's coming wrapped in flesh. I am ecstatic that we sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's my favorite Christmas hymn. Particularly George Whitfield's version, 1758. And that's kind of the one that we sing. And there's a couple of stanzas that we sing. I just want to remind you about because it does capture the, the essence of this joyous season. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. Please as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Here's John 1. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the son of earth. Born to give them second birth. You see, Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the fullness of God. He's the word of God. He's the maker, the ruler, the sustainer of creation. He's the unique one. He's the one of a kind. He's the full expression of God. The reason he's the prophet is because he's, he is the nearest thing to God that you can get because he is the Lord and he spoke about him and everything he spoke, he spoke directly from the divine presence of the Godhead. He is the prophet of God. What the prophets long for was finally seen when the Son of God appeared. And what I'm greatly concerned about this Christmas is that all of this becomes so ordinary to us. To speak of Christ appearing in the flesh doesn't strike our hearts with wonder and a sense of awe at God's marvelous plan of salvation. How can that become boring to us? English Puritan Matthew Henry in his book, The Method for Prayer, he offered this prayer to God that the, that the wonder and the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus would never stop and probably a prayer we would all do well to learn. He, he says this, we will give all honor to you, our great God, that when the fullness of time had come, you sent your son to be born of a woman, born under the law that he might redeem those who were condemned by the law. We praise you that the eternal word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. When this one who was first born in rank came into the world, all the angels of God were given the charge to worship him. We thank you that chosen, witness, chosen witnesses saw his glory, the glory that belongs inherently to your one and only son, who was full of grace and truth. Undeniably great is this mystery that God creates, God-centered living, that you, the eternal God, were manifested in the flesh. Moses and the prophets spoke words for and about God, but Jesus is the word of God. What does that mean? Well, we'll close with this. John says to us that he explained him, or the ESV has it here, that he made him known. It's a word that we get our English word, exegesis. It means that Jesus is the reporter. He's the describer. He's the interpreter of God. 
He is the real prophet who can explain because he has a unique relationship with God that's one of a kind that nobody else shares. He has knowledge of God that nobody else knows. He is not the one who is just not the one who is just speaking about God. He is speaking for God because he is God. That is why Jesus can make such a bold statement to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. My prayer for this season and for our church is that the Lord will help us to recapture the beauty and the mystery and the awe of the glory of God, the glory of the word of God appearing in flesh. To know God is to know his son, And listen, it's not uncommon. If you walk this life, if you walk in this world, it is not uncommon for sometimes our faith to grow cold, our hearts to grow distant. But God appeared in the flesh. He made communion with him possible. And sometimes we can get distracted and we can have a growing distance. But you know, through repentance, through confession of sin, we are always invited to the tabernacling presence of Christ and his spirit dwelling among us. We have no reason to be at distance from the Lord because God came to us and we must run to him. I pray that we can ponder those things this season and just be reminded in afresh of the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God. And so, Father, as we think about these things, I pray, Lord, as we have, uh, as we have examined that we would remember, Lord, there is nothing ordinary about you. There's nothing about you, Jesus. You're not a created being. You're the one who created everything. You're the one, Lord, where all the angels of God were commanded to worship you. You're the one, Lord Jesus, who spoke about your own glory. You're the one, Lord Jesus, who talked about your own judgment over the earth. Lord, everything about you points out and shows to us that you are this unique one that has come from God who in fact is God. Lord, our minds, we, we grapple with these things. We don't understand these things sometimes, but Lord, it is what makes you God and makes us not. <laughs> you are the creator, you are God, and we are the creatures. We don't have self-existence, Lord. Oh, but you do. We have the ability to create things, but not out of nothing, like you do. Father, help us to remember these wonderful attributes of you and the Son so that our hearts, Lord, will always just be amazed over the mystery of God and his Christ. Lord, we are grateful for this season, grateful for the reminder, Lord, of being able to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would, if our hearts have grown cold, that we would reflect on this passage and you would warm our hearts back to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.